Hello, and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Podcast. My name is Scott Miller, and I continue to serve as your host and weekly moderator of what is now the world's largest weekly podcast dedicated to the topic of leadership. Each week, we are pleased to have a different guest on. Oftentimes, these are world-renowned thought leaders, celebrities, household names, people that have dedicated their careers to studying or from an academic standpoint, you know, figuring out solutions to big problems. And we love those guests because they provide great fodder and insight for kind of what's next and what's happening out there in the world from a big picture point of view. And equally as important, we deliberately and intentionally try to complement those big names and big thought leaders with people who are on the rise. People who will at some point in the very near future become very similar in terms of their influence and stature. People who are in the trenches like you and I that are rolling up their sleeves every day, working our hearts out. Not that the big celebrities aren't, but that these people are practitioners, right? They're actually implementers every day, having difficult conversations, executing strategy, leading people, which we know is a enormously difficult job and not a job that everyone should have. Not everyone, in my opinion, should be a leader of people. And today we have a special guest because she's kind of straddling both worlds. She has and continues to kind of burst on the scene. And I can guarantee you in the coming years ahead, you're going to find her to be a key name in the leadership space. It's Heather Younger. And she's the author of multiple books, leadership keynote speaker, expert practitioner. And her recent book is called The Art of Caring Leadership, How Leading with Heart Uplifts Teams and Organizations. Heather Younger, Welcome to On Leadership. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Heather, delighted to have you here. I was a guest on your podcast about a year ago with my first book, Management Mess, Leadership Sex Sex. We kind of hit it off, became friends, we stayed in touch. And when I learned that your new book had released, we were hot on the spot to make sure we had a spot for you here on leadership. I'm excited today to talk about all things around caring leadership. One of the quotes that I use and a lot of my own keynotes is that uh, people don't quit leaders who love them, right? People quit bad bosses, they quit corrupt cultures, but people don't quit leaders who love them. And that can take on a variety of different, um, you know, pictures and motions and situations. What I'd like to do is spend the bulk of our time today talking about the hard work you've done to publish this new book. But first, would you take some time and reconnect with our listeners and viewers around the world. Talk a bit about your journey, how you became a leadership authority, an expert keynote speaker, and the author of this new precious book, Caring Leadership. Wow. I would say it started for me some years ago, probably about 10 years ago. I was working for an organization and it was going through a merger of five companies. And uh, the culture was going downhill quite fast. No one was really paying attention to the employees and the whole like sentiment of what was happening. No one was really being transparent with them. And so I was kind of in the middle of it as this kind of culture ambassador, but I was leading customer experience at the time. And I, I started to feel myself be drugged down by all of it. So I went to the head of HR and I said, listen, we have got to do something about the mistrust that's here, something that's, you know, what's happening with just the culture and the engagement. And she said, you know what? You're right. You should go do something about that. And I'm like, wait, wait, what? I, I lead customer experience. Like, why am I the leader that needs to do this? But it did make sense because I took a lot of time in my career to really uplift people, whether they were on my team or not. I was the one who was more communicative. So I just try to bring people together. So that's what I did. I went about creating an employee engagement council, bringing together the people that were in the office I was at, but they were actually from the different companies and bringing them around the table 
and talking about how we can start breaking down the walls of mistrust between the people who just didn't know each other. I mean, we'd see people with different titles. They look similar to our titles and we weren't sure if they were about to take our jobs, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's the culture that was happening there. So we really made an effort to make sure that we could uh, bring those people together. And in quick order, I would say within about six months, we start to see those walls of mistrust really start to come down. Now, the merger itself didn't go very well, but it was a really big wake up call for me. I realized right in that moment that I needed to be the voice for those who ordinarily don't have a voice during mergers, during reorgs. They are kind of feeling like things are being done to them. And so then what I did, I decided to just take that on for myself to say, if I can be the voice to the people who actually can change the experience for the team members during crazy times, through times of change, and I could help give a message to them that was synthesized and very direct and they knew what they needed to do, boy, we could then make some great changes together. And so that's why I'm at where I'm at right now today. Heather, you're known globally as the employee whisperer. Talk a bit about some of the, the key roles you had beyond this example, including your education as well. Well, I mean, I, I do have a law degree, so don't hold that against me. I am a, a trained lawyer. I don't practice, I haven't practiced for, for many years now. Uh, but the majority of the work I've done, it's been reviewing thousands of employee engagement survey comments, looking, overseeing uh, focus groups and listening sessions in the DEI space, diversity, equity, inclusion space, employee engagement space. I spent a lot of times in uh, culture teams and helping to brand and create and form those for organizations. So I spent a lot of time with both employees, the people who are driving the business forward, and the leaders who are trying to get a clue, trying to get the bottom of what it is their team members want to keep them engaged and make them feel like they're included and like they belong. Heather, the reason I asked that question was I knew you had a law degree and that you are an, a, an attorney by education. It's somewhat unconventional to have someone so passionate about culture and the employee experience and finding voices that's trained as a lawyer, very probably left brain thinking, very linear, you know, company first, right? Reputation first. What was the impetus that maybe took you from your, your education as a trained lawyer to really being a champion of the employee? Not against the organization, but the voice of the employee, the employee whisperer. Yes, I mean, so, I mean, it, obviously, if you want me to go even further back, and that's what you're getting to, Scott, I'm going further, further back. So as a child, I, uh, my mom is white and Jewish, my dad is black and Christian, and my mom's parents were not at all happy about that union. And I was an outcast from an early age, and I felt less than all the way up until my 30s, because I was never invited to any large family gatherings, no weddings, no more bar mitzvahs, nothing. And so I had this feeling that my voice did not matter. I had this feeling that um, that I was excluded. It was very explicit that I did. I was not welcome in that space and I did not want other people to feel the same way. So I automatically became kind of this cheerleader for the underdog, let's say. So as my journey went along and I decided to quit the practice of law, um, I ended up going into uh, kind of large account management, customer experience roles. And I realized all the time that the leaders inside those organizations weren't listening. They weren't listening to those that drive the business forward. They weren't listening yeah. to customers. They weren't listening to employees. And so then I needed again to be the voice. So it just became this constant message over the years. And when I got to that place where it was in the merger, it was like it all culminated. That, the, that all of the adversity that I had faced, the exclusion, the lack of voice that I had as a child, just reared its head up and and that's where i was able to shine and that's in that space of that of that five company merger and it made me realize right then that that's what i was called to do heather you're the author of several best-selling books renowned keynote speaker on the topic of leadership and culture and organizational alignment talk about what the definition of 
Caring Leadership is. Your current book is The Art of Caring Leadership. We'll talk about the art and the science in a moment, but why is your, why is your time focused right now on this topic of caring leadership and what does that mean? So caring leadership is showing concern and kindness for those you lead in very specific ways and consistently. And, and it's different. You know, if you think about this nebulous idea of care, we would, I care, he doesn't care for me. You hear these words, we throw the word care around a lot. What does it mean? And so this book puts uh, a structure in there, gives you some meat, some very clear behaviors with tactics behind it on how you express those every day and stories that back them up so that you can really see them in practice. So I think that's the most important. As we look at this last year and Oh my gosh, the mental health issues, the burnout, uh, just so much that's been happening, the death, unfortunately, right? We are all at a really tough spot. And we, and people in the workplace, outside the workplace, in our homes, they need more care. And leaders need to know what that looks like. And so I really have given you this guidebook to help you get there. In fact, the timing of your book probably could not be any more well-planned. You've been writing it obviously for, for a long period of time. You share a great story that is a perfect manifestation of caring leadership. I think you were uh, like the leader of a customer experience at one point in your career, but for a local government. When I read this story, I thought, it's so great to hear that local governments have a director of customer experience. Talk a bit about what that job was, the uniqueness of you know, leading customer experience for a public government. And you share a great story. In fact, I'm going to give you permission to elongate that and talk about the, the lessons learned around how one of your leaders was a perfect sort of personification model of caring leadership. Yes. Oh, I love this guy. There are only, I literally have maybe three leaders in the workplace. So I'm going to be 50 this year. I'm disclosing it. Oh my gosh, a woman disclo disclosing age. <laughs> uh, and, and during that time, I've had three leaders, three that actually I can remember who made me feel cared for. So this one gentleman, um, I worked for him. I already, I loved him before this story, but the story is going to make you love him too. So uh, I was really frustrated. They hired me to lead customer experience and it was a new role. Again, local county government, very big county. Uh, I was going about doing the customer experience thing, what I always do, there's a process. It is kind of linear from the lawyer perspective. There are things that you do and you put in place. So I'm going about doing it and I'm doing well, and I'm feeling good. And then all of a sudden everything kind of screeches as a whole. And it's because the leadership team had made some decisions that were about like, oh, no, we can't do this. We can't do that. We can't do this. So my my manager who happened to be kind of reporting to the, let's say, just say the CEO, it's really the county manager, he um, sensed that I was getting really frustrated. He, he had hired me, uh, but he sensed it. And he was, he was actually an account, a CPA, so he's an accounting type, but he has this really good sense of like emotional intelligence, this sensing this empathy. So he senses I'm frustrated. Out of the whim, he comes down to my office, he kind of knocks on the door and he, get, and he has this big grin on his face. And, and I'm like, what did I do? Or <laughs> like, what's happening here, you know? And he comes in and he sits down in the chair across from me. And he's like, Heather, I know that you're frustrated. We hired you to do exactly what you're doing. I know you probably feel like the leadership team is stopping you, but just be patient with us. Uh, we, we know you're doing what you're sh you should be doing. You hired, we hired you to do this. You're doing a great job. Keep doing that thing. But please be patient with us as we kind of work through some things. But we just, I just want you to know that I know you're doing a great job and, and keep your chin up, okay? And at that point, I had a huge smile on my face because I sensed in that moment, he was number one, he was meeting me where I was in understanding, meeting with empathy, and, and then with compassion, understanding where I was in my shoes, sensing it. He couldn't change it at the moment, 
but because he sensed it and he recognized it and he came down and he spent that time with me, whether it was only, it was only like 10, 15 minutes, it was just enough to fill me up, to help me get through kind of that next phase of having to wait longer and kind of adjust and, and tweak the way I showed up in that role. So it, that empathy, that compassion, that expression, him coming down from like this ivory tower, because it literally was like the fifth floor, he came down, he came to my office, knocking on the door, no appointment, came in, and he's very busy. And so for me, that him taking that time uh, to sit with me um, in that spontaneous way, that the, the grin, the way he uplifted me, and then he, and then he expressed and validated what I, the, the work that I put in, made all the difference for me. And like I said, he had done many similar things like that, and, and to this day, he's my favorite boss. Heather, this story stopped me dead in my tracks. Uh, I read a lot of books, right, as the host of this podcast and for my own personal reading as well. And occasionally you'll find a book where you read a story like this and you close the book up, which I did with your book earlier this week. Because I read this story, I closed the book and I thought, well, this is not a, an epiphany, right? This wasn't like the first time it's ever happened. Well, it might be in my career. The only time it's ever happened was reading it through you because as leaders of which you and I both have been, we kind of have our default to, you know, ignore those things. Or if you, you know, if you, if you feed a fire, you know, it'll inflame. You got to starve a fire, right? Or you obfuscate or you kind of deny it or you, or you patronize someone. I mean, again, I don't mean to be, you know, too demonstrative, but it's so rare that a leader really has the EQ and the IQ that has an investment in relationships to sense what is going on. Call it out. Validate it. Don't make any excuses. By the way, he didn't change it. He didn't say, we're going to no. stop and accommodate you immediately. He just validated your feelings, your reality, thanked you for your contribution, asked you for some patience, and kind of left. He, he, didn't, say, he didn't say, oh, we're going to change immediately. He just validated your feelings by caring about you. And that really is a call to action to so many leaders listening right now. Would, really you expand, is, yeah. would you expand on maybe why is that so hard for leaders? It doesn't mean they have to apologize or make it go away, but sometimes the best leadership is just stepping into the other person's reality and just acknowledging it. Yeah, and, and interesting. So one of the things that's really become clear for me, especially after the George Floyd, all the George Floyd stuff, all of the things that has just happened this last year on the race relation front, uh, people, you know, obviously come to me and they think, well, I'm the poster child for this. And I'm like, well, no, I don't represent everyone that looks like me, but I'll give you my view. And one thing that's become really obvious is that empathy and compassion are not the same things. So when I talk about empathy, it's not the same as compassion. Empathy is that sensing of another person, stepping in their shoes and seeking to understand where they're at, feeling some of their feelings if you can, right? And, and I, that is a part of it. Compassion is the action you take after you sense that. And so in this case, the compassionate action was his, him walking down spontaneously, coming, knocking at my door, give me that big smile, right? Staying there with me, spending the time with me. So it wasn't solving for the, the problem at hand, which is my frustration for things being paused. It was him taking that time. The compassionate action was him taking that time. So what I've just, what I've really, and I've been, ta I've been talking about empathy for years. This is, this is my number one strength. This is, this is who I am. But to be honest, what I've learned is that it's the compassionate action that actually makes the person feel cared for. So it's the empathy plus the compassion is like an elixir that creates this sense of care that like nothing else can. Heather, let's take that further. Uh, this is my own opinion, but it feels like in 2021, the big word is empathy. I think last year it was vulnerability, and I'm sure it was empowerment before that or engagement or some word, right? But it feels like right now you hear about 
empathy as a leadership competency. You see it on every organization's you know, list of, of, of desired traits that leaders have. Let's take it down from 30,000, 10,000 feet to like two feet. I want you to speak to all of the leaders of people, all the parents, all the spouses, all the humans that are listening or watching this podcast. Uh, what does empathy look like? What does it sound like? When you leave a conversation with someone, they feel differently as of a result of what action you've taken. Define leadership in behavior. Define, mm-hmm. sorry, yeah. define empathy in actual behavior. Yes, yes. And so I think the, the biggest thing with empathy is, you know, we say, well, you sense, you work, you walk in their shoes. But it really is about, in order to be empathetic or express, express empathy, you have to rid yourself of, of your own lens right in that moment. You have to remove your lens. You have to step out of your shoes and put on the lens of another. So as I'm sitting across from a team member, for example, I'm going to give you an example at that same job that I was at. I had one team member who was having a concern about someone uh, that was threatening her at home. And I sat across from her, so I moved from behind my desk and I sat across from her from the table that was in my office. And uh, I listened. So I leaned in and I listened. And then what I started to do is I started to ask her pointed questions to see if I, if I, if I one, of the, one of the gifts of this active listening process is that you ask close-ended questions if you're getting the gist of what they're saying, but you ask a lot of open-ended questions if you're just not quite getting it, you need more information. You need more information because really the desire is there to try to alleviate the pain, so that's where the compassion comes in. So you're leaning in, you're listening, you're asking pointed questions, and then you're saying, okay, so this, let me just tell you, this is how I understand what you're saying here. So you're telling me that you feel threatened by that person because this thing happened and you try to go do this thing, but nothing gives like nothing. There was no solution there. You've also gone down this road and this road and you still didn't get it. So now you're coming to me for help. I just want to make sure I'm okay. Good. So thank you for that. And now I want to kind of take some time to process this because I really want to reflect and take in what you've just said. And then I want to come back to you like in the next hour or two, even because since it's kind of urgent, just give me like another hour or two to process this. I'm going to come back to you and we're, I'm going to see if there's something we can do together to help get you past this point. So that's kind of the, that's how I, that's what I did. That's what I would do to, to make sure that they can sense that I'm truly listening because empathy can't exist without true deep listening. Listening is not always being about being a quiet. It's also about reflecting what we hear and, uh, and then making sure that we, we kind of, paraphrase it not just by spitting back what we heard but paraphrasing it based upon making them know that it was in our in our pores that we heard them and and that we plan to at least give them a verbal uh go forward or some kind of insight from that if it's not also in addition to that the cat compassionate action that's partnered with that so hopefully that's helpful scott but that's how i would approach that it's very helpful you don't portray yourself to be an expert on human behavior but from your vast experience as an author, a consultant, a speaker, an advisor, a coach, do you find that males struggle with demonstrating empathy in the workplace more difficult than females do? Do, do males have difficulty with empathy with females? What insights from all the people you've coached and the executives that you've met with, do you find that, any, that there are certain types of people or roles or backgrounds where empathy is more difficult for them to make authentic? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it, 
I want to say yes, but I have to be honest. I've worked with so many different leaders and male or female. And to be honest, sometimes it's the women that have the issue with this, yeah. partly because uh, in large extent, we don't we kind of are fighting against it because people are assuming that we have right. it or assuming we're right. going to ex exude right. it. And so we are kind of like right? strong. Yeah, like mm, we're strong and we're and so I can't be empathetic. I have to be like self-reliant and those types of things. What I am finding is there's I have been seeing a a um, kind of a move with with men being really called to the work I do. So I've, there's a lot of men who reach out to me and they're like, oh, I'm so excited for this community or, oh, yeah, thank you so much for that book. And I'm like, wow, I've been very impressed. And I, I'm like you, kind of a little surprised that all of these people are men have been really called to it. Now, if I were to look and edit an aggregate and I would go back up to 30,000 foot view, I would venture to guess it's probably a 60, 40 with women being on that side. But yeah. I'm just saying, yeah. as I look at it and I'm standing in this space, talking to employees and leaders and really inundated, as you talked about earlier, kind of in the trenches with this stuff, um, I am seeing a movement where men are being more open and receptive and they're kind of seeking this out. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think also your personality makes it very comfortable for someone, especially a male, a white male even, right, to be very open and, and, and um, honoring of your wisdom. Uh, speaking of wisdom, uh, like many rising influencers, we know that uh, there's no such thing as overnight success. There is overnight fame, but there's no such thing as overnight success. You have had a long and storied career, not always in front of the camera or in the limelight. And you talk in your book a little about some of the lessons you learned in your early career associated with the Mary Kay Cosmetics Company, what you learned from the founder, Mary Kay. Would you, uh, would you talk to our listeners and viewers about your experience? What did you do with Mary Kay? What point is that in your career? What were some of the lessons you learned around the art of caring leadership from your experience with Mary Kay herself? Yes, oh, so most people were like, wait a second, I thought you said she was a lawyer early on. <laughs> yeah, I was. I left the practice of law to go work with Mary Kay Cosmetics as a sales consultant. So not in the corporate world, but in a, as a sales consultant. And the reason why I made that move is I would run into the different, the, there was one sales director, she ended up being my director. I would see her at different events when I was marketing the law firm and the legal services. And I loved doing the marketing side of the law. I just didn't like the actual law. <laughs> but I would go and do that and I would see her and she always seemed number one she was so put together she seemed so happy then she started having me she started courting me is what i call it she would invite me to different events and i would see how all of the women were and how the, all the teamwork was happening and everybody seemed so fulfilled and everybody was so jazzed and i'm like i want that because i wasn't feeling that i was feeling like a withering in the vine when i was at the law firm <laughs> so i did that went, went in there and then what they do immediately is you start doing sales meetings you start to go to these different conferences and those are amazing full of energy people like powerhouse speakers those who have been very well on the stage and i was getting kind of that early sense right there of like wow and this has been many years ago i want to be up there right um, it was just amazing to see it so at some point, I never actually got to meet Mary Kay Ash, but there were stories. It's almost like this legend. And yes. then, of course, you'd see like videos and there would just be all these other interactions. And there were the books that she wrote. And so you had a, just all this kind of uh, infusion of Mary Kay Ash and, and how she and one of these stories that, that she that that is told often about her is that she has this ability to or this this way about her where she could be there could be a line of like a million women standing to wait to talk to her at a conference. And she would do as I'm doing right now, looking right at this darn, she'd be looking at you in the eyes. You'd feel completely 
enraptured and just like enveloped and just like hugged by her. And she would not even be paying attention to the people behind her because they were next, but they weren't in front of her. So that idea of like making that person right in front of you feel important, like you're the only person that matters right there in the room was a huge lesson earlier on in my leadership journey. Um, and it, it taught me the importance of doing that. And so I try really hard. I'm not perfect. I'm not nearly as good as Mary Kay Ash, but I, I learned that make that sense of importance that you create in others makes them feel a sense of care. They feel when they feel important, they feel validated. Uh, they feel like the things that they're doing are meaningful is they feel a part of something bigger than themselves. Uh, it's huge. So thanks for asking. It's just, I think, so inspiring to have someone on leadership that we all can relate to, right? I mean, again, your, your, your fame, your influence, your name is rising strong in the leadership space globally. But yet, like many of us, you know, you sold cosmetics. I didn't sell cosmetics, but I worked at a bakery, right? And I washed bakery pans and all great journeys have this common denominator, which is that, you know, you started in the trenches, right? And, and worked your way up and you've now culminated all of your lessons in this book, The Art of Caring Leadership. In fact, you actually have the caring leadership framework that has these sort of nine key components. The ninth one you called uh, Build Their Resilience. I love this chapter because this is not, again, not a, a profound statement, but you know, the person who thrives professionally and personally post-pandemic is going to be the person who is agile and who is nimble and who is flexible in his resilient. He, he or she is resilient. How do you define resilience? Well, it really is this idea of mental toughness. It's this ability to kind of stick with things when things get tough. That's what resilience is. And we all want it, but what we don't realize is what it takes to get there. We don't want to do the hard work to get there. It's kind of like this. I, I like to make the comparison of uh, working out, right? We're like lifting weights and we're like, oh yeah, it hurts. So like, it's, you know what's happening when you're lifting weights, trying to build muscle? It's actually like tearing. It's tearing, it's ripping. It's like, it's not a, a fun process that's happening when that muscle's building up. But then once it's done and you're drinking all the water and you're stretching and, and you see yourself like that next month, you're like, ah, that's where resilience is. You have to put in that work. It hurts like heck because you have to overcome all these barriers, all these obstacles. And then you, you, you come from it. You rise from it to say, I'm stronger for it. I'm stronger for it. And so I put that there after listening to these stories. I ask in my podcast, which is kind of the foundation of this book, I ask people, when was there, when was there a time when they were not the best versions of themselves? They were not the best leaders that they hoped to be. They weren't leaders of the heart. And the stories that some of them tell were just like you know, jaw dropping. And I had to highlight a few of the really big ones in the book because I felt like what they did personally to come out of it and then also showing some of the stories of what other people, what they have done to help other people come out of it. And so they do, leaders have to be themselves first resilient in order to give or teach resilience to their team. And so they can't do that. You can't give what you don't have. And that's why I think it's so important because if you think about it right now, oh my gosh, now the biggest issue is going back to work, requiring vaccines. Uh, am I afraid to be next to you? Do I want to be near you? Would I like to be at home in my pajamas? There's all these things going on. And leaders right now are going to have to be put to the test to figure out how do you show up with strength, but empathy and compassion? How do you uh, meet your people where they're at in their shoes, not in your shoes, not in your shoes? How do you do that in a way that is um, genuine, it lets them know they're cared for, but also still show the strength of whatever that decision is for the organization? So this resilience is going to be huge and it's not going away anytime soon. Heather, you're really proving 
a point that is leadership is difficult and it's becoming more difficult, right? Gone are the days where your job as a leader was control and command and manage outcomes and drive results only. You're now building culture. You're now recruiting and retaining talent that's being poached or wants to leave for some other reason with lower attention spans, no less, no less talent, but a lot of options. Leadership of people is becoming a linchpin of an organization's competitive advantage. Another one of the P P or, um, parts of your framework, you call it provide them safe spaces. And I'd like to read uh, an excerpt from this because I think it's a profound insight for you to expand on around some of the challenges that leaders of people are now facing that perhaps they weren't facing two, three, five years ago. And you talk about someone you interviewed and he said he was a leader of an organization, the chief people um, an operations officer at a company. He says, I focus a lot on trying to provide space for people to point out where I'm getting stuff wrong. And then I try to be as vocal as I can with my team about, yeah, this is some of the feedback you gave me about how I'm running the team meetings not quite as effectively as you want me to. We're going to try something different here. And this doesn't happen very often, right? I mean, it's rare that you have a leader, whether they're frontline, first level, mid, senior, executive, CEO. When is the last time your leader said, hey, give me some feedback on my meetings because they know they're going to be eviscerated because most meetings are long and unfocused and meandering and they suck the soul out of you. <laughs> but I love this, this, this point, the, the self-awareness this leader has. As we end this conversation, speak to, directly to all the people leaders around how important it is to show an openness, as you call it, to hear hard things, including hard things about your own style. Yeah, here's the thing. Safe spaces are not created overnight. They're built upon a foundation of trust and respect. If you haven't earned that trust, you haven't earned that respect, uh, shown respect towards the other person, you're not going to have a safe space. So you can't, yeah. as the mid-level manager, as the executive leader, as a CEO, you can't announce that you're all of a sudden going to create these spaces, that you're going to, oh, we're going to now have a roundtable, and I, we want you to open up, up, up about all these things. And here's why. It's that story that you just talked about. Phil, who's the one that was highlighted in that story, he already had had a track record of meeting people for coffees, um, asking them for feedback, um, having the team meetings, asking for feedback, responding, uh, going to the leadership team and having sitting down with them to figure out what they could do to meet the feedback that he had heard, going back to the employees. To be honest, he, cre he walked through the cycle of listening I talk about in the book. He walked through it beautifully. Uh, I had to highlight that. But it's because he did all this hard work up front. So don't go about this, every leader listening right now, thinking that you can just announce a safe space or, oh, next week we're doing a series of roundtables. Well, some people may show up. Don't be surprised if they don't speak up or if they don't actually speak the truth. If they do, then voila, great for you. That means you actually have maybe built more trust, have a, more, a stronger foundation of trust and respect already in place. But if you haven't, it is not an overnight thing. Don't get too frustrated. I would say that in the end, the idea is that you want to be able to do what you say you're going to do, follow up with things that you're promising right now, especially right now with this return to work look, the vaccines, all these things we just talked about, the things that are brewing right now. Follow up uh, in, in a consistent way, knowing that at some point, uh, hopefully, they will then validate that the trust is built and you can create more of those spaces. And that's the, the work I do in the consulting space is about we're outsiders helping to come in and kind of manufacture the safe space to get the information, the truth, so we can tell the leaders what they need to do to make their employees 
happy, uh, you know, staying, uh, going over and above. And so I think that there's always an assumption that you say you want to create a safe space, that you can just go do it. But Phil did the hard work. Leaders who do that hard work of doing it consistently and following through the process are always going to be able to create that space. Heather, as an author myself and a leader with Annie Oswald of our book strategy here at Franklin Covey, I know how much thought authors put into the titles of their book. And you could have easily called your book just Caring Leadership, but instead you chose to preamble it with the art of caring leadership, I guess as opposed to the science. Why was it so important for you to call it the art of caring leadership? Yes, thank you. Well, it's interesting. The first epiphany came to me, the the art idea. I was at a um, Monet exhibit and it was, I was going with my children on a, on a field trip and I was sitting down looking at one of the, just one of the paintings. I was like, wow. And I was like, I wonder how, and then someone else came by and they're, and they're seeing this. And I realized that we're all, we're not seeing the same things. That when we're looking at art, it, it is the eye, of be, the eye of the beholder. It's like the one who's experiencing it, right? So when I talk about art, it really is that caring leadership is, while I have a self-assessment that helps you assess where you fall on the spectrum, the caring leadership is about the end user experience, just as art is. It's the person on the other, the people on the other side of your leadership experience that actually decide whether you show care or not. So the other thing is that art, if you think about it, this idea of like unique brushstrokes, right? And we have our canvas and we have all the tools we need to create this piece of art. And the same thing is for our leadership. We get to choose which brushstrokes we use to create that work of art called our leadership. And it could even be, it could be expressed as caring, a caring leader. It could be expressed as a jerk leader, right? It could be expressed lots of different ways. It's our choice which brushstrokes we use, and that's why I chose art. Heather Younger, you are legit. If the author, podcaster, speaker, influencer thing doesn't work out for you, Franklin Covey would love to have you join our family. Thank you for your time today. The book is The Art of Caring Leadership. How Leading with Heart Uplifts Teams and Organizations by Heather Younger. It's on sale now. What's next for you, Heather? Other than promoting the book and your practice, what's next on the horizon for you? I'm already planning another book, so the odds are there'll be another book coming out like late next year or the, or the beginning of the year after that. And what I found is that my books, they definitely build upon each other. Uh, so the next one will be focused probably more on uh, helping organizations create cultures of listening. Uh, so that'll be the main focus. Right now, I, one thing that's good to mention is that this book, while I love it, it's beautiful, isn't it? It's not actually just a book. At the back of the book, I have an invitation to create a self-assessment. And as they, as they create the self-assessment, or as they take the, create, uh, take the self-assessment, uh, they get their results and they're looking at it. They're like, okay, well, where do I go from here? Well, voila, I've created a caring leadership community that has some caring leadership coaches in it that are ready to help uh, that leader in a supportive way work through their results. And there's also a caring leadership academy that is specific to the behaviors that are outlined in the book and they can take the courses in the academy to help fill up some of those gaps as well. That'll continue to expand over time, but it is not just a book, it's a support system. And that's, I'm gonna be really, really focusing on uh, building that out, creating more support for those leaders who enter into that ecosystem. Heather Franklin Covey is honored to feature you on our podcast series. Thank you for joining us today. We'll see you back here another year for the next book on listening. Thank you. Hey, and thanks for joining us. Uh, If you're not subscribing to On Leadership, do so by visiting franklincovey.com. Comes out every Tuesday morning in an email with a blog post from me and a tool from Franklin Covey's Toolkit. You also can rate us, review us, 
and subscribe to any podcast on any podcast platforms. We'd love to have you do that and encourage your team members, colleagues, family to do that as well. And we'll see you back here next week for a new On Leadership interview.